0: We're in chapter seven, and we're really in the midst of a war that's brewing between the Philistines and the Jews. Shmuel has gathered the Jewish people together at a place called Mitzbeh, where he calls upon them to reaffirm their commitment to Hashem, to remove all idol worship and evil that's within them. And then Shmuel judges the people, like it says at the end of verse six. And now in verse seven, the Philistines are coming after the children of Israel. They see this hitvadut, this huge gathering, they see it as a threat, as some kind of mobilization for war. And so they want to just squelch this rebellion against them right in here and now. So let's go to verse 7. And the Philistines heard that the Jewish people had assembled at Mitzvah. As we said, they assembled for a prayer session. And the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And the children of Israel heard this. And they were afraid of the Philistines. And there's a bit of a dispute uh, among the commentators. What was the intention of Shmuel calling them together at Mitzvah? That he gathered the people together, we saw in the previous verses. What was that all about? Well, as we said, they had a prayer session. They were reaffirming their commitment to God. A- they repented. They spilled water. We saw that. And maybe that's all it was. A giant prayer session, which wasn't intended to cause a stir among the Philistines. But it did. And Mishamayim, it was God's orchestrating events this way, causing the Philistines to confront the Jews so the Jews could eventually defeat the Philistines. But other commentators, like the Dat Mikra, they say the following, Havino The Philistines understood that this assembly of the Jews here wasn't just a giant prayer session, but the intention of this gathering was to get ready for war against the Philistines. So according to this opinion of the Dat Mikra, Shmuel organized this huge assembly for the Jews to pray and to repent and so forth. And then after that, the intention was to go out and fight the Philistines, just like King David. You write Psalms, you pray, and then you go out to war. And as we go through the verses, we'll find evidence for each point of view, whether this was just a giant prayer session that was interrupted by the Philistines or was Shmuel's intention all along to mobilize for war against the Philistines after the Jews cleansed themselves in the tshuva. Okay, so the Philistines are coming up against Israel. What is the reaction of the children of Israel? Verse eight, And the children of Israel said to Samuel, They said to Shmuel, don't stop crying out to the Lord our God for us, that he save us from the hands of the Philistines. So you can say from this verse, ah, well, the Jews are being wimpy here, they're fetching to Shmuel. No, that's not so. When they say to Shmuel, don't stop crying out to the Lord. It's not crying like crying like a baby, but the word in Hebrew miz'okel Zaaka, which is an expression of intense prayer. They're asking Shmuel, pray to the Lord, cry out to the Lord in prayer. And that is a level of bitachon and emunah and Hashem. This is not some empty act of taking the Ark out like they did in that last war against the Philistines. This verse shows that they believe in the power of prayer. And it's a positive thing here that they're asking Shmuel to cry out to the Lord. We have something very similar to that. When you go back to the book of Exodus, in the end of chapter 2, the Jews were suffering in Egypt. Moses was in Midian. And then we get a verse at the end of chapter 2. And during that period, the king of Egypt died and the Israelites groaned in their slavery and they cried out and they cried out for help. And their cry went up to God. And God heard their tzaka. He heard their calling out. And he remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then the word for cry out is also v'yizaku. The same word that's used here. So it's a level to cry out. That means you believe Hashem can help you. You're saying, Hashem, help me. That's a madrega. It's a level. And directly following that tzaka to God, crying out to Hashem at the end of chapter 2 in Exodus. What's the next verse? The beginning of chapter 3 is the burning bush story where God answers them and is going to send their deliverer, Moshe, to Egypt. So we see that the very fact that they cried out to Hashem, that's a level, that's a madrega, just like the Jews here asking Shmuel to cry out for us, pray for us. And Halavai, if only we would be the same in Israel today, instead of turning to empty politics And false messiahs, we would just say, Gavalt Hashem, help us. That would be a madrega because it shows we really believe that Hashem can change things. It's an expression of Bitachon, of faith and trust in Hashem, just to cry out sometimes. Okay, so the children of Israel are crying out to Shmuel and saying, Pray for us. And what does Shmuel do? We'll see in verse 9. Shmuel tale echad. And Shmuel took one young lamb, and we're talking about a lamb that was nursing from, from its mother because it's a tale chalav echad. from the word milk. And he takes this young lamb, and he offered it up as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Korban Ola kalil Hashem, that's a sacrifice that's entirely entirely consumed by the fire on the altar. None of the parts go to the priests to eat or anything like that. It's kulo la Hashem. The entire sacrifice goes to Hashem. And the verse continues, Shmuel el Hashem ba'ad Yisrael. And Shmuel cried out to the Lord on behalf of Israel, Hashem, and the Lord answered him. So Shmuel cries out, That's what the Chosen of Israel requested from him. They said, Cry out to Hashem. And he's crying out to Hashem, Ba'ad Israel, for the Jewish people, Vayeneo Hashem, and the Lord answers him. And this verse and this whole event really seems to be what King David was referring to when he wrote Psalms 99. It says in verse 6 there, in Psalms 99, we say this on Kabbalah Shabbat, Moshe of Aaron anav, U'shmol b'korei Moses and Aaron are among his priests, and Shmuel calls out his name, that's what's happening here. He calls upon the Lord. He calls out his name. And the Lord answered him. So that verse in Psalms is really congruous to what's happening over here. Now, when it says that the Lord answered him, well, how do we know that the Lord answered him? What does that mean here? Did a voice come down from the heavens and say, thank you, Shmuel, that was great? No. The Mitzvah that David explains what it means that the Lord answered him. Raashnit Shmuel saw that this sacrifice was accepted by Hashem. Why? Ki yadah ha'esh because a fire came down from the heavens and consumed the offering. And when Shmuel saw that, And when Shmuel saw that, he was confident that the Jews will be victorious. So the verse says that Shmuel was answered because Hashem reciprocated by bringing a fire from the heavens. It wasn't just a fire on the altar that was consuming this korban, this sacrifice. But a fire came down, devoured it, and that's always a pretty good sign. Like when Elijah the prophet and Har Carmel brought down fire from the heavens, and that means he was answered. And Elijah said back then, answer me. And the answer comes in the form of that fire coming down from the Shemayim and consuming the sacrifice. Now, it's important to understand what this sacrifice was all about. It was customary to offer a sacrifice right before you start a battle. And we're going to see that in chapter 13. Later on, when Saul is the king, right before yet another battle with the Philistines, he goes to offer a sacrifice before actually entering into battle. That's what's happening here. Shmuel is not just praying and expecting a to for miracles. He's offering a sacrifice right before the battle starts. Okay, so let's see what happens next. The tension is mounting. And as Shmuel was offering up that burnt offering, Israel, The Philistines were drawing nearer for war against Israel. So that's pretty amazing. Shmuel is keeping his cool, a lot of composure, no panic. The Philistines are approaching and Shmuel, cool and collected, he's busy with the mitzvah of the hour to offer this young lamb. And that's derived from his deep faith and bitachon and trust in Hashem that the power of his offering is greater than the power of the Philistines. That's what enables him to keep us cool. He's not going to start the battle without offering up that olah, that particular sacrifice, even if the Philistines are starting to breathe down his neck. Anyway, the Philistines are drawing nearer for war. And what happens? And on that day, the Lord thundered with a loud noise upon the Philistines. And they were, hamumim. They were thrown into a panic and they were beaten before Israel. So the combination of thunder and lightning accompanied by that fire that was descending from the heavens to consume the Ola, all that together threw the Philistines into a panic. And this fulfills almost word for word what Hannah, Shmuel's mother, prayed for in chapter two in her song, Alav B'Shamayim Yirehem, that upon the adversaries of Shmuel, B'Shamayim Yirehem, thunder will come down from heaven. And that's what's happening right now. And we've seen this phenomenon before back in the book of Judges. When the Judge Gidon, this is back in chapter seven in Judges, the Judge Gidon was left with 300 men. And what does he do? He divides them into three companies and he places trumpets and empty jars in their hands along with torches. And when Gidon and his army approach that Midian camp, they blow out those trumpets. They break those jars, making this crazy noise. In the left hand, they have these torches. And because this was all at night, the Midianites, they just fled from the scene altogether. And it's like we say in Te'ilim, Kol Hashem Shover the voice of Hashem breaks the cedar trees and the loud thunder and lightning broke the Philistine armies. And the Ralbank points out that it says it thundered upon the Philistines. So you had a situation where all this thunder and lightning was over the heads of the Philistines only, and it was not upon the Jewish camp. Okay, so the Philistines are running, they're in panic, And we come to verse 11. And the men of Israel rushed forth out of Mitzvah. And they chased down the Philistines. And they slaughtered them all along the way until they got up to this place called Beit Kar. So the Philistines flee, the Jews are making chase. And notice the term used, and the men of Israel, they went forth out of Mitzvah. And if we go back to that apparent dispute between the commentators, what the purpose of Shmuel's gathering them in Mitzvah, what was that all about? Was it just a prayer session, a chizuk, a hit Or was it the intention to go to war after praying? And according to the opinion that the whole idea was to go out to war, there's evidence to that because it says, an Yisrael, And the men of Israel went forth. When you have that term, Anshay Israel, the men of Israel, that sounds like we're talking about soldiers, Anashim, people, men, who were prepared for battle. And they chased the Philistines down to a place called Beit Kar, we're not exactly sure where that is, but it's obviously some kind of boundary between the Philistine lands and the land of Israel, which means they basically chased the Philistines out of the land of Israel, and the Philistines have retreated to their southern cities, so this is a tremendous victory. And we go to verse 12, Vayikach Shmuel and Shmuel took a stone, and he placed it between Mitzvah and Ashen, which is some kind of peak. And he called the name of the stone Ebenezer. And he said, Up to this point, the Lord has helped us. So that's an interesting thing that Shemuel does here. He sets up a stone which will serve as a testimony to the miracle. We saw Joshua do it a couple of times because he wants the miracle to be remembered. It's not like somebody's filming this. That huge stone, people will look at that stone years from now, and they'll recall the miracle that happened in this war against the Philistines. Anyway, this is an interesting move that Shmuel does here. He places the stone between Mitzvah, where the Jews had originally encamped, and a place called Shen, and he calls the name of the stone Ebenezer, which literally means the stone of help, which signifies that up to this point where this stone is, that's where Hashem helped us. And the Redak explains, up to this point, that is where Shmuel put that rock, the Lord helped us without any effort of our own. That is that thunder and lightning that came down upon the Philistines and caused confusion and panic. They fled and up to that point, that was Hashem's doing. But from a certain spot and onwards, that where that stone is and onwards, the Israelis pursued the Philistines. So the first half of the victory, that was God's hand. And the second part of the victory, that was the Jewish army, making their natural human efforts. And the mitzudat David explains it like this. What it means is, up to this spot where we put this rock, Hashem helped us when He made the Philistines panic. When that thunder sent the Philistines into panic and confusion, and the Jews. Didn't do anything yet. But from this stone and onwards, the Jews pursued the Philistines and chased them down. And it was the Jewish army, flesh and blood, participating in this victory. And on this, Rabbi Kahana writes: In other words, there's a need to partner emuna, faith, together with koach atzmi, with one's own strength, rak hem only by joining together, the emuna, the faith in Hashem, and your own Hishtaglut and your own effort, that's the Jewish way. Now, the name of this stone was called the Eben the Stone of Help. And if you recall, when the Jews lost that war against the Philistines a couple chapters ago, that battle took place in a place called Ebenezer, like we said, in the Roshayan area. So it's interesting that the name of this stone, Ebenezer, that Shmuel places here, and the place where they were defeated by the Philistines is also called Ebenezer. And so why would Shmuel give the name of this victory stone, his name, Ebenezer, the same name as a place where they previously got trounced by the Philistines? And the Rav says about this, that Shmuel is trying to teach him a great lesson, that success and failure by Imrakmi Dei Hashem. All that is in Hashem's hands. For the same Philistines, the rabbi writes, Avarati <speaking in Hebrew> those same Philistines that defeated us a couple chapters ago in Ebenezer were defeated now by the same Jews. What happened? What was the difference? The only difference. Because this time the Jewish people had repented and had faith in the Lord. And so the same army against the same enemy this time succeeds when last time it failed. And Rabbi Kahana mentions at the end about the Six-Day War where the Jews defeated the Arab armies. Yet that same Jewish army in the Yom Kippur War in 1973 almost were defeated. What happened? Why was the Yom Kippur War almost a disaster while the 67 Six Day War was a glorious victory? Because after the miraculous victory in the 1967 Six Day War, the Jewish leadership didn't give credit to God. It was our own strength. That's how we won that Six Day War. That's what the generals were saying. I ah, think so. So Hashem brings along the Yom Kippur War in 1973, where we were almost destroyed to teach you it's not your army. And it's not your hand that brings victory, but it's Hashem who's Ishmael Chama. Hashem, he's the man of war. The outcome depends on him. So let's move on to verse 13 and we'll finish the chapter. And these last verses are really important because they give a real overview of Shmuel's leadership. They're what we call summary verses. And it says in verse 13, And the Philistines were subdued. And they no longer came until the border of Israel yad hashem and the hand of the Lord was upon the Philistines call you Shmuel. All the days of Shmuel, the Philistines no longer posed a threat. That's what this verse is saying. Verse 14 and those cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel they were restored to Israel. may it groan vadgat from Ekron to Gat withlan, and their borders, Hetzel Israel Mead These cities were delivered from the hands of the Philistines. So two out of the five Philistine cities were in the hands of Israel during Shmuel's rule. Because in actuality, those Philistine cities, they're in the portion of the tribe of Judea. And during Shmuel's reign, at least two of those cities, Ekron and Gat, returned to the Nachala, to the portion of Judea. Now, it's interesting in the wording of the verse, it says that Ekron and Gat were delivered from the hand of the Philistines. But in Hebrew, the word is they were saved from the hands of the Philistines. So we see that land can be saved or rescued, just like a person can be saved. And parts of Israel that are in the hands of the Gentiles have to be saved. And you don't usually think that way when talking about land. You talk about people being saved. But we see that they saved the land from the Philistines. They saved it. Because when parts of Israel are in the hands of the nations, then it's incumbent upon us to rescue that land. So when people say that bikuach nefesh overrides the land of Israel, that is, you're allowed to forfeit parts of the land of Israel to save a life. It's not so simple. Here we see a concept of rescuing the land and fighting for the land of Israel, which is a mechemet mitzvah, an obligatory war. That overrides any consideration of Pikuch nefesh. We know people die in wars, but a war for the land of Israel, a melchemet mitzvah, teaches that you have to rescue the land. And then the verse concludes, shalom ben Yisrael And there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. So suddenly we get another nation mentioned here, the Amorites. And that's usually a general term for the Canaanite nations. And we know that Joshua didn't really finish him off. And they many times were a thorn in our sides. But during Shmuel's time, there were no trouble with the Amorites. Concerning the Amorites, Rabbi Kahana points out in his commentary that because they're from the Seven Nations, they're especially dangerous because they feel indigenous to the land. They think it's their land. And if you go one book back to the book of Judges in chapter 1, it says, We see that these same Amorites were oppressing the tribe of Dan. So as long as the Jews were strong under Shmuel, These Amorites, who are Canaanites, didn't pose a threat. They laid low. But as the Rav says, they'll take advantage of any opportunity to fight against the Jewish people. And therefore, it's forbidden to let them remain in the land. And the Arabs of Israel today have that same characteristic of the Canaanites, that they think it's theirs, which is different than some Gentile, a Chinaman, or a Swede, who doesn't claim Baalut, entitlement, to the land of Israel. But we see here that in the days of Shmuel, there was peace with the Amorites, just like there were no problems with the Philistines. So it's important to remember that sometimes you think of Shmuel as a dos, as this Rebbe who sits and learns all day and judges the people and does Dean Torah. But we see here in these verses, he was a national leader as well. He helped throw off the yoke of Philistine conquest in the land of Israel. Verse 15, Vayishpot Shmuel at Yisrael kol And Shmuel judged Israel all the days of his life. And we mentioned this kind of a mechloket, how long did he judge the Jewish people? We try to figure from the 20-year span that the Aron was in Kirat Yarim, we came to 11 years, but some commentators say it was much longer. But again, when we say he judged the people, that means he was leader of the Jewish people. And when we say that he judged them, kol yemei chayav, all the days of his life, that is literally true. Because even as a young child at three years old, we saw his mother dedicate him to the tabernacle in Shiloh. So literally all his life, he served the Jewish people. Shmuel, thank you for your service, as they say. Let's now finish off the last two verses of the chapter. And these verses are important. They're really Shmuel Hanavi's modus operandi. And Shmuel went from year to year. And Shmuel went from year he would go on a circuit from El to Gilgal to Mitzpah, Veshafat Israel at Kola Kabot Elu, and he would judge Israel in all these three places. So this makes Shmuel different than all the other judges that preceded him. The previous judges, they would sit in the places of their residence and the people would come to them and they would judge the people. But we see here that Shmuel's different. He's going out to the people. He's making the rounds. He's leaving his place of residence in Ramata and he's circulating amongst Am Yisrael, doing outreach, doing Kiruv and judging the people. And the three places mentioned here that he went to, Beitel, Gilgal and Mitzpah, Each one of these places are really important. Bethel, of course, was a place known from the days of our forefathers. It's in the portion of Benjamin, about 15 kilometers north of Jerusalem. Another place mentioned is the Gilgal that he went to. And there's a lot of places called Gilgal in the land of Israel. So we're not sure which Gilgal we're talking about. There's a Gilgal near Yericho. There's a Gilgal near Shechem. And the last place mentioned that he went to is Mitzvah. And that, of course, is the location we saw in this chapter where he gathered all the Jewish people together for a prayer session before going out to war. So all these three places were really important and holy places for Am Yisrael at that time. But the point is, he didn't bother the people that they all have to come to him. He goes out to them. And by doing so, Rabbi Kana adds here, that gave Shmuel a handle on what's going on in Am Yisrael. He had a hand on the pulse of the nation. By not sitting home and waiting for people to come to him and going out amongst the people, he sees how they live. He sees what their needs are. He's able to gauge what's the matzav, what's the situation in Am Yisrael. And that's what a leader has to do. And finally, verse 17, we finish the chapter. Uchuvato ha but he always returned to Ramata, Kisham because that's where his house was. Vasham Shafatat Yisrael. And there, he also held court for the Jewish people. Hashem, and he built there an altar to the Lord. So we saw at the beginning of the book of Shmuel that his father Elkanah was from Haramata, Ramatayim Tzufim. So that's where Shmuel also lived, and he would return after his circuit to his home in Ramata. And the Redak and the Mitzudat David say on this verse that those who he was not able to judge when he did his circuit in Betel, Galgal, and Mitzvah, when he came home, all those not covered in that circuit were judged in his home in Ramah. And that's why it says in the verse, and he held court for Israel. It's not like he went home to rest. He's still holding court and judging the people when he's at his base in Ramatayim Tzufim. And it says at the end of the verse that he built an altar to the Lord. We'll see that altar in chapter 9 when Saul comes around. That's the Bama they'll be talking about later on. And so we see that Shmuel built a high place for himself upon which to offer sacrifices, which were of course permitted from the day that Shiloh was destroyed. The Bamot, the high places, these private altars were permitted. Now the rabbis in Tractate Brachot gleaned from these verses something new. It says in verse 16 that he went all over the place, Shmuel, to all these places to judge the Jewish people. And then it says in the final verse, and then he returned home. So the rabbis and the Gomorrah put these verses together and say that every place Samuel went, that was his home. That is, when he went on the road to judge the people, his house was with him so that he would have everything he needed and wouldn't be forced to benefit from public contributions. That's what it means he went home. His home was with him all the time. He wasn't a schnorr. He didn't take anything from anybody. And in a few chapters from now, in chapter 12, verse 3, when Shmuel is rebuking the people, he's going to mention that point, that he never took anything from anybody during his journeys to judge the people. He says, bear witness against me before the Lord. Whose ox did I take? Whose donkey did I take? That is, he didn't take anything, not even a glass of water so that he won't be influenced. He doesn't want any shokhad. He doesn't want any any kind of bribery. He doesn't want anything that could affect his objectivity when he's holding court, because maybe one of the litigants once gave him a glass of water or something that could affect his objectivity. And the Gomorrah in Brachot points out that you don't have to be that way because we see Alicia, another great prophet, who lived much later on, we saw that he did enjoy gifts by the woman of Shunem. She built him a whole little apartment with a bed and a stool and a candlestick, and Alicia took it. No big deal. You can do it if you want to. He enjoyed those gifts. He had benefit from those gifts given to him by his admirers, but Shmuel took nothing from anybody. And so, in short, looking at these final verses, we see how Shmuel and Avi, with his actions, caused a great change for the nation of Israel. He brought them back from idolatry. He showed them that it's not the ark that protects them, but their tefillah, their prayer to Hashem, that's what will protect them. And besides being a great spiritual leader, he was a great national leader, liberating the Jewish people from the Philistine yoke and bringing the Jews back to being a sovereign people on their land. And from all this, maybe we can understand the verse, Moshe v'Aron b'chow shmuel b'chorei Then that Moshe Aaron. Whereas prophets Shmuel calls out his name, and we learn from that that Shmuel was equal to Moshe and Aaron. From all that we read here, we can start to understand why.